Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. It's great to be here with you today. We have a little bit of a late start. We have a full show. want to let you know we hit the streets earlier today with a brand-new print issue. You can also find us online at independent.org. I'm joined by the Independent's Associate Editor, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We've got another amazing show today. And in the first half of today's show, we'll be talking about Mayor Adams' latest brutal round of budget cuts to city agencies and the public services that they provide. We will also talk with the group that is working to redirect money from a bloated military budget to cities like New York. And in the second half of the show, we'll get a report from an anti-war protest in lower Manhattan that is just now getting underway. It's in support of a theater troupe that was recently arrested in mass on the West Bank. And we'll speak with the creators of a beautiful exhibit currently on display at Brooklyn College called From Beirut to Brooklyn. We'll also share some highlights from our beautiful new issue of The Independent. At the half hour mark, it's loaded with more Palestine coverage. But now we turn to City Hall, where Mayor Eric Adams is pushing dramatic mid-year budget cuts that would cut funding for most city agencies by 5% and then by another 10% in April. Adams says he has to do it because of the influx of migrants over the past 18 months coming from the southern border. But critics of his plan note that there is no budget gap this year. And why insist future projected budget gaps are not nearly as bad as he claims and that he is actually using the migrants as a convenient scapegoat while he carries out a preset austerity agenda, which we'll talk more about. So joining us now to help us make sense of what's going on with these budget cuts and why they are so worrisome is Brandon West. He is a former city council staffer who focused on budget-related matters when he worked there. He also ran for city council in 2021 as a DSA-endorsed candidate in District 39 in Park Slope. He finished second in a seven-candidate race. Uh, Brandon has a powerful op-ed. Uh, in our current uh, new issue of The Independent. Uh, it's titled, City Council Must Reject the Mayor's Rogue Budget Cuts. It's also currently the top article on independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. Brandon, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Sure. So, first of all, can you describe uh, the scale of the cuts envisioned by Mayor Adams and what their impact would be on New Yorkers' lives if they were carried out? And also tell us about the two city departments that are not uh, being targeted for these cuts. Yeah, certainly. So this, you know, this is the current budget. So this is a modification. So this isn't a new budget. This is the already existing, particularly austere budget that we have. And this is an additional 1.4 billion uh, cut from essential and like care-based services. You know, so this is, this will essentially eliminate more than 2,000 jobs. So this is include libraries, you know, and this is, you'll be hearing some things about this, like, in general in the last few weeks and in the future, but this is about almost like half a billion to the Department of Education, uh, you know, and this is not even talking about out years, but this is like more immediate, but you're talking about ending of uh, lots of funding going to community schools, like hundreds of DOE jobs are going to get cut. There's like a summer rising program that's going to get cut. 
you can talk about libraries, you talk about the ending of some of Sunday, uh, you know, um, services, you know, in public libraries, which some folks are talking about. There was an event which was a vigil for this, you know, weekend service, which is super important because it's a time when a lot of people need access to it. You know, it, it goes deep. You know, CUNY is already talking about some of their core basic operation services are not going to be possible with this type of cut that's going uh, to it, you know, and obviously there's two, um, you know, agencies that are being left largely the same, which is you know, corrections and, and police, you know, and this has been, you know, they'll say that like, oh, we're making some small adjustments to these agencies. These agencies have gotten uh, the lion's share of a lot of new funding in the beginning of Eric Adams administration, and it's being left the same because this is like security, quote unquote. Um, but as you can see, like a lot of the funding that's being used is a lot of expensive capital budgets, things that don't need to happen now, even if you agree that it should happen, which a lot of folks will say they shouldn't. And then also you have like a lot of expensive overtime. So you're talking about cops standing around in the subways on their cell phones, uh, collecting overtime, uh, not, not really doing much of anything. You know, this is what their budget's being kept for when we're making these kind of cuts through the social services across the city. And to what extent do we even have a budget crisis um, given that there's no budget gap expected this fiscal year and the budget deficits um, being forecast for future years. Now, I know in your article you talked about how those, you know, that that's what he's, that and the migrant influx is like what he's basing his reasoning for this austerity budget on. So explain why that's not how we usually actually um, do that. Right. I mean, so this is already a technical process and we're going into a more technical part of a technical process, but, you know, a, this is not you know the normal budget process where large policy decisions are decided usually in the beginning of fiscal year. But what we're dealing with is like these aren't gaps in the like immediate. This isn't like we won't be able to function tomorrow if th- this funding isn't done. This is we have out year issues, i.e. a lot of we have a lot of costs that in the future years we will need to be able to manage and change. So the out year funding when it comes to capital and expense. Uh, with the city fluctuates a lot because there's a lot of different ways you can move money around to kind of deal with that push projects that aren't as important down the road a little bit. There's a lot of little behind the scenes budget magic that happens to get that stuff to balance out. What the mayor is essentially suing is like, we are going to need all of this to balance out immediately during the mod. Um, when it's usually small numbers of money, uh, is being moved and shifted around. Um, and we're essentially making policy decisions off of something that really can be done with a lot of coordination with I- ideas that IBO has, independent budget office, um, other ways to try and bring in new revenue or, you know, and that's the big one. Like what is the state and what the federal government's doing for revenue in particular with the state, because the governor has committed multiple times that they're not increasing any new revenue. We had the controller from the state saying that like that, you know, 2019 revenue was an incredibly important uh, piece of the puzzle of the state's functioning and we have the governor not willing to bring in new revenue. You know, those are all the pieces that usually are done now in order to kind of make a plan to, to cover these gaps in the out years. What mayor's doing instead is just saying, hey, we're just going to make massive cuts now um, when no one's, well, we don't have hearings to have a process to talk about it, um, really engage with the policy of it. Uh, this is just him executing right. on a policy idea. Right. Because in the regular process in the spring, I mean, you have months of hearings and uh, interest groups being able to lobby city council and, and negotiations back and forth between the council and the mayor. And it seems like he's trying to just short circuit that whole uh, process. Uh, now, um, one thing that's uh, been troubling about this uh, process also is he re- repeatedly uh, tries to blame uh, the migrants uh, who have come to New York city over the last year and a half, roughly 140,000 uh, individuals, mostly coming uh, from the South 
of of the border. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? And also, uh, as I recall, this summer uh, he kind of got caught trying to hand out this massive no bid contract for hundreds of millions of dollars to a company. Uh, I, I think they had no expertise in the services they claimed they were going to provide. Yeah, I mean, this is the real trick with this is because the argument that he's making is a situation that he create, himself created. Because um, first off, you know, the Independent Budget Office, uh, which is independent, uh, was able to do an analysis on, you know, asylum seekers, essentially saying that the costs being projected are overblown. You know, then they were able to make changes unilaterally of sort of what those costs were going to be, which kind of showed that they were not totally accurate. And, you know, on top of that, you know, they're well, a lot of things that the mayor is already doing, which is exacerbating the problem. You know, I, I think the mayor is, you know, uh, is not funding this uh, CFAP's, you know, voucher program. So like other ways to get people housed, um, he's not really using, which would free up other housing throughout the city to be able to like address this general issue. So he's not dealing with, with the housing issue writ large. And then also there's just like the contracts and like how he's implementing the system that he already is started, which is uh, massive contracts to the only bidder uh, that have, really are just throwing away like tons and tons of money on top of the situation. I mean, I think one vendor was throwing away uh, like thousands of meals a day, uh, each of which costs like $15 or something along those lines. You know, this is just like one inefficiency on top of many in terms of how he's managing the crisis. So this is a very manufactured migrant um, crisis, but he needs this to make the argument that, you know, it's, it's someone else's fault. It's not my fault. And effectively, that's what he's doing by like not housing people, not doing the other policy work to kind of deal with the issues of our shelters. He's pushing this onto this this fairly racist narrative that it's the migrants problem. And unfortunately, I don't have the numbers on hand, but even the actual cost, despite what you're explaining um, with this sort of like manufactured crisis with the way it's been handled, the actual costs still don't account for the amount that the budget's being cut um, at all. Um, but so the mayor and the city council passed the annual budget in June, as they are required to do, and fiscal year 2024 is already underway. Without getting too deep into the weeds again, can you describe what these m- mid-year budget cuts are and how the mayor actually gets this other shot at going back and enacting the budget cuts he had to forsake when he reached a compromise with the city council back in June. One example being cuts to the library services that were then rescinded, but are now on the table once again, putting the whole through city through this sort of, you know, emotional roller coaster. With right. real, you know, Absolutely. I mean, a lot of my friends work for the city and they're, sorry, really nervous about losing their jobs. But yeah, anyway, it's a it's a disaster, and he's cutting revenue building agencies too. So like that even is a dumber idea. Uh, but so what happens is we have like four times a year to kind of reevaluate the the budget, the city budget, and those are financial plans. And when you make a mod, like I mentioned before, a modification is those like small changes or shifts of money. But if they're within a certain threshold, they require a vote. And what he's doing is essentially things he wasn't able to cut before. He's like adding to this mod. Like generally, mods are very small amounts of numbers. Like when I was at OMB, you know, a mod would come in, I would fiddle around online with it, send like a quick memo. It, it's not a very large thing, except when it's very like large quantities of money that's being shifted and moved around. You know, so this does need you know a thumbs up from from council, which it usually does because you don't deal with policy during a mod. You know, so there's no infrastructure to have a policy conversation during it. Um, so. That's effectively what he's doing is trying to like have get this through and force council to 
effectively be an obstructionist to them, which process which normally isn't very uh, drawn out and long. You know, so this is where all life of all these kind of cuts and unfavorable, unpopular things are kind of being reemerged in this like technical process that usually just happens and is not as much of a you know back and forward as it is now. Uh, so that's kind of like how he's using the you know general mod process as a, a time to push policy and really gut the city. And right now it's like the least tenable time to be working for the city. Uh, people are leaving in droves. It's it's really a tough time just because of the fact that the agencies can't do their basic services. They can't be agencies because they've been kind of to the bone already. And now he's bringing these old ideas back to kind of go further. Right. And just to be clear, and we've had conservative uh, mayors in uh, recent decades, including Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg, uh, they did not uh, do anything this uh, uh, far reaching in the mid-year budget process. No, um, this is the first time in my memory since the, um, since when uh, the, the almost uh, bankruptcy of the city where a mayor has kind of pushed um, a mod that has been like this drastic policy wide. Uh, so yeah. the council has a, has a chance of doing this, but you know, it's, it's, it's again, it's just a new territory for all of us just because of the situation. Right. And unfortunately we only have a couple more minutes here, uh, but can you describe uh, what it is the city council could uh, do to try to thwart this? And in particular, what is the progressive caucus of the city council doing that they are 20 of the council's 51 members? I know they had a, a press conference and a rally about a week ago, but uh, are, are they going to be able to uh, to get Speaker Adrian Adams to push back against the mayor? I mean, what's the uh, internal struggle look like from your vantage point? Right. So the key here is like, we have this new look progressive caucus. They're like more focused and, uh, you know, uh, in their, in their vision and you know the really this rally is like a good window into sort of what the press process and folks in that space are trying to do which is like demand the mayor like you cannot make these incredibly damaging cuts to our communities and our districts um unless you find another way to make savings um you know either by changing the nypd and uh permanent corrections budget which is a huge piece of um the budget as is or try and find other ways to do pretty reasonable ideas in terms of dealing with out-year costs by dealing with headcount and other types of things that AIBO and all these other folks are totally open and willing to work with the mayor on to try and do, you know, I think council has to just essentially say you you can't get away with this. Now, if council were to just vote, you know, no on the mod, he can still move money around in some other backhand way. So it's not going to be an overt, you know, stopping of what's going on generally immediately with the fiscal budget city, but this does tell him that he can't get away with it. And I think that's a very important um, statement for council to make, progressive caucus to make at this time, going into how much crisis is going on through the city that the mayor is having have happened. Okay, well, we'll continue to monitor this and it, the mayor, both what the mayor is doing and how uh, progressives and socialists on city council are, are responding. Uh, Brandon West, uh, uh, former city council candidate yourself and also former budget staffer for city council. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Independent News Hour. Yeah, thank you. It was good talking. Okay. All right, we'll be back with more after this short music break. Sorry. 
Simone, you are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I am your host, Amba Gergarian, here with my co-host, John Tarleton. Second segment, in our second segment, we'll return to City Hall, where peace activists will be gathering tomorrow at 11 a.m. for a rally. The Move the Money campaign is urging City Council to pass a resolution calling on the federal government to cut its military budget. A number of other United States cities have passed similar resolutions in recent years. New York would be the largest to date to do so, and the resolution, of course, would be non-binding. But at a time of budget cuts for the poor and the working class and runaway military spending for the Pentagon, it is a way of making a statement about what our real priorities should be. Joining us now to talk about this is Tara Curry of Move the Money. Welcome, Tara, to the Independent News Hour. Good evening, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Well, absolutely. It's a pleasure. So tell us about the Move the Money campaign and its history here in New York City. Well, the Move the Money campaign in New York City has been active for about five years now. Uh, originally under the old council, uh, Idanis Rodriguez was the council member uh, who, who submitted a resolution called 747A that, again, put the city council on record saying that the federal government needed to cut its spending to the Pentagon and redirect the, that money to things that people actually needed, like schools, like subways that were clean and functional, like decent public hospitals, decent public housing, job training, you name it. There's a whole laundry basket full of things. But um, the, the uh, speaker at the time, Corey Johnson, was not in favor of this resolution. And so even though we got many, many co-sponsors, it was never called um, for a committee hearing. And it just died when the when the term of the council uh, expired. So last year, 2022, we had to start all over again. We got a, a champion, Carlina R- uh, Rivera from uh, District 2. And, um, but it's still took us a year before the resolution was act- actually introduced. We thought we would have a much easier time because uh, Adrian Adams was elected Speaker of the Council. She had been a co-sponsor of the previous resolution, so we thought we had sponsorship, but it still took a year. Um, and right, since can, that- you tell, can you tell us... Uh, where things stand now, you have the you're gonna have this rally tomorrow, and then it's uh, gonna be happening to... in the afternoon, and there's gonna be a hearing or maybe even a vote. What? Well, give uh, us an outlook for tomorrow. Yeah. So um, the outlook is changing by the hour. We actually had a hearing last week, 
Uh, we had, it's been assigned to the Committee on Cultural Affairs, Libraries, and International Intergovernment Relations. Uh, we had more than 30 people show up. The committee was shocked by how many people we had come on. We had even more submitting written testimony. There was an overflow. They had to put people in a waiting room somewhere else down the hallway because so many people showed up to testify. So we had our hearing, and we were assured at the time that the resolution would come for a vote before the committee. But tomorrow, and and uh, Carlina Rivera scheduled this rally. But tomorrow is the last stated meeting, the last official meeting, that means, of the city council uh, this year and actually for this council because a new council comes in in January. And it is not on the agenda. And we, I am constantly on the phone, texting, emailing. We were assured it would be on the agenda and voted. But as of now, it looks like it will not come to a vote tomorrow. But we are going ahead with the rally anyway to say, we don't like this switcheroo. <laughs> we turned people out. You have lots of testimony. You have lots of support. We have 27 council members co-sponsoring it, plus um, Jumani Williams, the public advocate. There is support for this, but the speaker is not bringing it for a vote. Right, and that's 27 out of 51, you know. It's not like the, the national, you know. It's like nearly but half. So right. I want to hear a little bit about... You know, the real life effects of this and the, and the testimonies, uh, you tell us a little bit about like, the kind of stories that you were hearing in these testimonies um, and, you know, why that was an important part of this push. Well, it, that's an interesting question because they said we were in the Cultural Affairs Committee. And so before we testified about Move the Money, we happened to hear lots of people coming in from cultural institutions, both tiny ones that I wasn't aware of in Brooklyn and the Bronx and Manhattan, and also major institutions like Carnegie Hall and the Schomburg Center and the Louis Armstrong House and the Museum of, Nat of Natural History. And they were all testifying about how devastating the budget cuts will be to their institutions. They will have to cut very successful programs. And so that was a p particularly wonderful way to lead into us to say, well, here's an example of something really terrible. And in that case, not even all that much money. Uh, in some cases, you know, two or three hundred thousand dollars would make a difference as to whether or not a program went forward. And we can tell you and move the money where that money is. There are trillions of dollars going to the Pentagon, uh, a department that has never been able to pass an audit. And people gave testimony, all kinds of things. We had uh, professors from CUNY. We had school teachers saying about how they gave an assembly at their uh, middle school. And the students were shocked about the amount of money that is going to the military. They had no idea that 60% of the federal discretionary budget goes to the military. That's why there's not enough money for their schools. That's why there's tuition rate rises at CUNY. That's why the subways are in the state that they're in. NYCHA's in the state that it's in. You know, most of NYCHA's money comes from the federal government. So that one is a very direct connection the federal government isn't giving NYCHA the money it needs because as soon as you say 
we need more money for Ukraine. The money comes like that. The, the, you know, the federal, the, the, um, NDAA, the National, um, Defense Authorization Act that was just passed, I think, a week and a half ago. They gave more money to the Pentagon. They, I mean, Congress gave more money to the Pentagon than the Pentagon asked for. Right. <laughs> They're not asking for enough. Take another few billion. Yeah, but we I don't mean, have money for NYCHA. Yeah, the irony that the same time last week that y'all were finally having this hearing, uh, uh, the House of Representatives was putting the final vote on the on the military budget, a record eight hundred and eighty six billion dollars in the annual budget. Of course, uh, uh, Biden and others are seeking to shovel another sixty one billion dollars to a failing war in the Ukraine, fourteen billion dollars to Israel to continue its genocide in the Gaza, more money for so-called border security, money for Taiwan. Uh you know, and then you throw in the spy agencies and all the rest. We're talking about more than a trillion uh, dollars a year. It's really staggering. And and um, I think there's a website was a National Priorities Project that's done calculations on like how much a given city or state uh, uh, funnels uh, its tax dollars to the Pentagon. I mean, here in New York City, we're talking many tens of billions of dollars in New York City taxpayer dollars go and get hoovered right into the uh, Pentagon instead of NYCHA or CUNY or any other services like that. Um, so I guess this last of all, um, you, you want to tell people where they can find you on, on the web or uh, how well, they can yeah, get in touch we, with we your campaign? Well, yeah, we have a website, um, mtmnyc.org. It's Move the Money in New York City. So mtmnyc.org. Uh, we'll be out 11 a.m. tomorrow in City Hall Park, just north of the fountain. We're having our uh, our rally to say, what the hell, why won't you pre- vote on this resolution? That was, you know, is very revealing, too, is that at any level of government, they don't want to talk about federal, they don't want, even when they're talking about federal spending, they don't want to talk about the military. They don't want to talk about the billions that are shoveled there. They're fighting about moving the money here and moving the money right, there, right. Right, and shuffling things. They don't want to talk about where the big pots of money really are and are being wasted. Right. Well, we'll have to leave it uh, there. But Tara Curry from Move the Money, we're so glad you're uh, trying to hold these folks accountable. And uh, good luck out there tomorrow. Thank you very much, John. Good night. You bet. All right. We're going to take a short music break and we'll be back with the second half of the show. Thanks, John.
That was Ummi, which means my mother in Arabic by the Lebanese musician Marcel Khalife. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. And I am Ambeg Gergarian, the Independence Associate Editor, joined with our Editor-in-Chief, John Tarleton, and we are your weekly Tuesday hosts at 5 p.m. And the reason that we are able to um, pr- produce this independent media here on this independent radio station is with the donations of you, our lovely listeners, and at a time when you're getting out asked for um, a lot of money from your kids and your grandkids and other organizations like us. We do hope that you consider WBAI. WBAI is one of the longest standing and really kind of last long legacies of, you know, the left and independent media here in New York City. It's been around since 1960. Um, you can donate by calling the phone number 212-209-2950. Again, it's 212 212- 209-2950 or go online to WB, give the numeral to WBAI.org. That's online. Give number two WBAI.org. And if you are able to, if you're in the car and you can pick up your phone and make a call, or if you're at home listening and you can get online or pick up that phone, we would really appreciate you doing that now. If you can give one time, whatever you can give. If it's little, give five. If you have some extra money to spend, give 300, 400, 1,000. Uh, if you have the money to afford it, you can become a WBI buddy and give weekly in the name of the Independent News Hour, you know, uh, sorry, monthly. And if you give at least Only 10 once a month. Once a month, yeah. $10, it's just at least $10 a month and you get extra perks. So please do keep the station alive so that you can keep hearing this independent, you know, not sponsored by anyone except for you news here that is unique. We are the only radio station that is fully independent. Um, and that's a fact. So please. Right. 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or online at give2wbai.org. Right. Now, I wish uh, I wish this radio station had the tiniest uh, fraction of the money that gets uh, siphoned into the Pentagon, uh, into the war machine that we uh, talked with our, our last guest, Tariq Curry. Uh, their new budget, $886 billion a year, just passed Congress last week. Uh, well, WBAI's budget is a lot smaller than that. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, we have to raise that money ourselves. Our, our tax dollars are being siphoned off to things that we don't necessarily want, but we can still dig a little deeper and support uh, valuable community institutions like WBAI. I mean, it, it is fully independent, and something all those weapon makers do is they always take out lots of commercials on the Sunday morning talk shows, and you know they underwrite different shows on uh, NPR and constantly uh, burnishing their image. Well, they don't get in the door here. Not one bit, but the only reason we have the transmitter and the antenna beaming away across the New York City region from four times square in the middle of Manhattan is because of you, the listener. You make it possible for us to have uh, an independent radio voice in New York that can bring you guests like Tara Curry for Move the Money, um, uh, like Brandon West there talking about the austerity uh, being imposed at um at City Hall by the mayor, and, and our upcoming guests are going to be fantastic, too. We need you to call 212-209-2950, or go to give number 2 wbaiorg 
Uh, it'd be great if you can become a WBAI buddy for as little as ten dollars a month. You get all sorts of excellent uh, perks and premiums from that. The different uh, access to different cultural events and venues, among other things. Two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. Two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. Yes, and and uh, you know, Amba. I mean, I know people get hit up by a, a lot of requests uh, for money at this time of, of year, but I mean, you know, WBAI brings it every week, fifty-two weeks a year. And uh, just to underscore, I mean, uh, we do a lot of great work here on the Independent News Hour. Just uh, the rest of the, tonight, the upcoming shows. You have the Democracy Now Half Hour Edition at 6 p.m., Electro- Electronic Intifada at 6.30 p.m. tonight, Revolutions Per Minute, the DSA a show from 7 to 8 p.m. We're going to have Edward Said from 8 to uh, a special uh, tonight from 8 to 10 p.m., the great Palestinian uh, uh, philosopher and uh, historian. Have the, and then we'll have a Midnight Ravers special from 10 to p.m. to midnight. So you know, this is a station that has the news, public affairs, culture, Cultural programming, music, all of it. Please support it uh, one more time. 212 209 So, uh, and uh, we wanted to also take a minute just to talk about our new issue of The Independent. Uh, uh, and once again, uh, we have a lot of uh, Palestine related coverage. Amba, um, you want to talk about that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, we have. Um, a wide range, uh, from sort of more, um, creative pieces that look at how the Palestinian diaspora, um, you know, has, uh, created this community in Little Palestine and Bay Ridge, um, over recent decades, uh, by Laura Noor Walton. You have a piece, uh, kind of exploring what it means for, um, the structures that make up your daily life to be completely destroyed by me. Um, and then you have other pieces that talk about APAC and the money that they give to candidates by you, John. Um, and, and the list goes on. We have pieces about the act, grassroots action here in the city by Rebecca Chowdhury. That's really great. And sort of next to that, we have another piece um, that is about the worldwide global activism and specifically direct action targeting war manufacturing companies with links to Israel. So we really have the gambit. Um, and, you know, uh, it's this is this uh, genocide, this uh, genocidal attack on Gaza. Um, I think by all the, you know, definition of genocide, it, it, it's not really, uh, it's okay to say that now, um, happening. And so I just want to give a few updates, um, before we move on with the show. Um, right. What do you, what do you, what's the latest? Your, uh, uh, monitoring. Yeah. This, 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 uh, this news isn't dead. So yeah, on the ground reports in recent days suggest that Israelis buried Gazans alive with bulldozers outside the Kamal Adwan Hospital. That Kamal Adwan Hospital in Jabalia was the last operating hospital in northern Gaza, which is the more populated part. Um, but reports from routers say today that the hospital is no longer functional after that December 12th siege that lasted several days with the bulldozers coming in on all sides. So also the Israeli settler real estate group called Harry Zahav 
is already actually selling properties on Gaza at quote unquote pre-sale prices. So you can buy your beach house in Gaza now. Um, and there's information about that verified information, um, out on the internet by Al Jazeera and more. Also, according to a November 15th article by, uh, the outlet Middle East Eye titled Israel Palestine War, Israel wants to siege Gaza's multi-billion dollar gas field written by Saeed Hossein Mosavian. On October 29th, quote, Netanyahu's government awarded 12 licenses to six companies, including BP and Italy's ENI for natural gas exploration off the country's Mediterranean basin area, i.e. off Gaza. The new resources of oil and natural gas are valued at an astounding $524 billion. Lastly, I will share the horrific news that in an effort to destroy Hamas's tunnel network, Israel began flooding some of Gaza's tunnels with seawater last week, a U.S. official told CNN uh, one week ago. The Times of Israel released an article on Thursday titled IDF Trial of Flooding Hamas Tunnels with Seawater Proves Successful. And the assistant professor of American University uh, at Beirut, an assistant professor that is named Hanin Hassan or at Hanin09 on Twitter at H-A-N-I-N-E 09 on Twitter tweeted that this, you know, blasting the ground with seawater will result in the long term destruction of groundwater and aquifers, rendering agriculture and drinking water impossible and eliminating life for decades. This is a crime against humanity. Mm. It, it, it's just one thing after another, but. Uh, protests continue uh, on a daily basis uh, here in New York and many other places. There's going to be a big uh, labor-led uh, rally at Bryant Park on Thursday uh, at 5 p.m. as more labor unions are getting on board with the ceasefire. But right now, there's a protest going on at Astor Place uh, in lower Manhattan over the uh, recent arrest of people associated with the Freedom Theater in West Bank uh, in the occupied territories. The independence, uh, Ashley Marinaccio, uh, is there. Uh, Ash has been a Hi, guest on the show before. Welcome back. Real quickly, you don't have a lot of time, unfortunately, but if you can paint a quick picture of uh, what's going on out there. Hi, John. I am in Astor Place with, um, couple hundred culture workers and theater makers from New York City who are standing in solidarity with the Freedom Theater and artists and theater makers in Palestine. Um, as you just said, there have been arrests of Freedom Theater members, um, Mustafa Sheda, Jamal Abu Joas, and the artistic director, Ahmed Tobasi. He was released, but the other theater, uh, the other Freedom Theater, uh, members are being held. Right, so we're out have- here tonight and we're, uh, protesting against their, um, uh, against their arrest and in support of all of the Palestinian artists um, in the West Bank and in Gaza. Right. Now, you have a long background in theater yourself as a practitioner, and you've traveled to the West Bank and uh, uh, collaborated with Freedom Theater. Uh, Before we have to go here, can you just tell us the significance of the Freedom Theater uh, for the people of Palestine? The Freedom Theater is a cultural institution that provides young people and the community in Janine, the refugee camp, with um, with tools of theater. They believe in theater as resistance, and um, you know they they provide the people of Janine with a space to uh, work through the traumas of the occupation, make art, tell their stories, and have their voices heard. It's very important. They're um, one of the 
uh, one of the largest cultural institutions, Palestinian cultural institutions in uh, the West Bank and in Gaza, and they're globally renowned. Okay. Well, thank you for this update, uh, Asha Marinaccio. Uh, stay warm out there, and we'll continue to follow this story. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And all right, so speaking of, of culture and the Middle East, uh, something we've been really excited uh, to learn about is there's a tremendous exhibit uh, right now uh, at uh, Brooklyn College uh, called uh, From uh, Beirut uh, to Brooklyn, and uh, uh, that really sort of uh, uh, unpacks the lives of uh, young people in Beirut uh, sharing their stories uh, to an audience at one of our uh, CUNY campuses. And uh, uh, we're lucky to be joined tonight by the two co-creators uh, of this uh, project, uh, Farid Nassif. He's an adjunct professor at CUNY and at Fordham University, and also uh, Dr. Eben Wood, professor of English and co-director of the Creative Writing Program at Kingsborough Community College, another CUNY campus in Brooklyn. Uh, Farid and Eben, welcome to the Independent News Hour. Thank you. Thanks so much, John. Yes. Good right. To see you. So, John, nice for starters, you. you want to just uh, describe this project uh, a, a little bit more, uh, uh, what it is and how it came about? Absolutely. Uh, the exhibition is now, it's currently in the Brooklyn College Library Lobby, as you said, until January 20th. Um, and it's a, it's both, uh, Evans photographs, uh, that are of, uh, landscape, people, and city life. A lot of them, enormous three by five uh, feet in some cases um, complemented by life stories written by students at Lebanese University and the Universal School of Lebanon, which is the high school in Kora in the north. Um, so our objective has been to create a cross-cultural dialogue between multicultural students in both Lebanon and at CUNY. Um, and so we have a generation of Lebanese people born after the Civil War in Lebanon who have lived through the 2020 port explosion in Beirut when there was this reemergence of traumas, pasts still alive in the present. And so there are stories. These are stories of traumas um, and misalignment that exist both here among multicultural students at CUNY and among students in Lebanon. That's our objective is a parallel of voices and ultimately a connection between these faraway places and people. And, uh, Farid, you've been to Lebanon recently, and I think, um, Evan, you have as well. But tell us, Farid, a, a bit, uh, um, about, about the, the aftermath of the explosion and, and what, um, what things have been like in Beirut since then, um, and, and how it's even affects the, the larger Arab world. And, Evan, if you want to add anything on, uh, from, you know, um, a non-Lebanese perspective, feel free to. <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of it's coming from those voices, students feeling of being unrecognized as Lebanese and now reduced to their Muslim or Christian identities, which has been something is, uh, besides just reopening wounds of, you know, post-Civil War uh, family trauma that sort of seems to be seeping into the, the younger generations now. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of students have escaped after their either high school or college careers because there's really no stability. Um, and, and no access to, to money, even cash out of ATMs. And so they've, they've moved on to places like the United States. They've moved on to parts of Europe. They've moved on to Canada. Um, yeah. So but we're well, sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but what do you mean by 
the how how the recent events of the explosion in 2020 would affect the people you know identifying with as christian or muslim rather than as lebanese like how how does that bring rebring those traumas well rather than feeling like there's one unified uh sense of not nationalism but sort of uh sense of i guess pride um in a lot of cases they feel very much divided they're not they don't feel as though their identity is is focused on being lebanese so much as focused on whether they're sunni shia or christian um it's sort of like they're reduced to one single aspect of self which is a lot of what this project is about is bringing out voices um you know uh, recognizing and also encouraging these voices to be shared so that they can express how they felt that they've ever been reduced to one single aspect of self. In many ways, they, they're forgotten or unrecognized altogether. So um, that's an ongoing sort of display or way of sharing uh, how they feel very much misaligned um, and that they don't feel so much that that's a home to them anymore. And what last last follow up here, but what does do they see as the aggressor in this situation? Well, if I, I mean, just as a non, you know, obviously, as you said, uh, uh, as a non-Lebanese uh, uh, or, or... Yeah, but that's interesting. Uh, Please go ahead, Evan. I mean, part of the issue with this project was, and it did, you know, the, pro- the project began with a grant that I uh, received from CUNY to do the work, which I then worked with Farid to develop. The project is, is perhaps... I think part of it was not necessarily over-focusing on an issue of trauma to begin with, even though, again, it, the project followed uh, the, the port explosion and that longer history, obviously, the Civil War, those born after. Uh, and that's similar with many other uh, uh, areas of peoples in the world, uh, besides the Middle East or Palestinians per, per se, or particularly, is the, the tendency to only view them through the lens of trauma, as opposed to also the rich history and the diversity of the population. And, and so... Um, that itself would be something that in the, in the storytelling wasn't necessarily focused uh, immediately on traumatic memories, but on a rich tapestry of the con- context for their lives uh, around them in the culture. So it, it, while it certainly entailed the trauma, many of them wrote about the port explosion, and certainly I was there as part of that project for he was unable to travel uh, in uh, February of 2021 when I went there under the auspices of the grant and, and met you know, it was the irony of meeting with 90 Lebanese university students by Zoom in Beirut because I was unable to meet with them face to face because of the, the COVID closure. Uh, is it, you know, it's certainly that's a, it visually in the, or physically material in the city. That's it's it's a, it, at that point it was a year less than a year, or just over a year rather after the port explosion. It's still uh, a, a de- devastation in the in the heart of that city, which the heart of Beirut is not a particularly large uh, space. Um, and I traveled fairly widely in the Middle East before that, uh, so I was familiar with other, other, including the West Bank and, and, and other areas, uh, in, in through the Gaza Strip very briefly, uh, a part of that. But it, it, you know, on the one hand, that dominates in a way the landscape. Um, but you also see in some of the photographs, for instance, the Martyrs Monument, which was erected in the early 20th century, uh, about the earlier anti-colonial struggle of the Lebanese people is, uh, which had been, uh, it, it, it literally directly overlooks that devastated port at this point. So you, you, it's really a kind of palimpsest or layering of all of these experiences. But at the same time, the stories aren't necessarily themselves tied to a single trauma or a trauma. It's, it's the context for that thing. So that we don't, as Westerners or outsiders, we don't necessarily have to focus just on the, de- I mean, you know, right now is obviously a very, very contested right. period that happened. So 
Oh. Yeah, we're, we're, we're down to our last minute here. And just uh, one more question I had for uh, uh, either or both of you. How is this uh, exhibit being received uh, by the CUNY students at uh, Brooklyn College, uh, hearing the stories of uh, their uh, uh, working class uh, um, urban counterparts uh, in, a, in a whole other culture? Uh, is there some resonance there that they're picking up? Yeah, I would say that, you know, a lot of it's just identifying people that have, again, been sort of unrecognized and seeing that as a youth, a generation of people who, you know, are multicultural in the CUNY system uh, that now experience or see some kind of way of reflecting uh, a sort of mirrored understanding of people who have real lives that are often, again, sort of uh, voiceless or invisible. So when they see that they have just even just day to day, sort of challenges, those sort of things are, it's a wonderful connection to see that as a dialogue. Um, and that's been successful. I've had it, my whole class at uh, Brooklyn College came to write reflections about which um, students' voice, which students' uh, excerpt impacted them most. In a lot of cases, it had to do with uh, things that, you know, are routinely uh, problematic here in the United States that have to do with uh, gender role issues or challenges with, um but, you know, a history yeah, of family we're violence. We're down to our last 15 or, seconds. Okay. Well, and we also have this wonderful website. It's www.beirutobrooklyn.com if you want to see that we update the website regularly. And we foresee that more CUNY campuses will bring uh, this exhibition uh, to their spaces in the beautiful space at Brooklyn College right so now. Come on out and check it out. Please do. Okay. Yeah, beautiful campus out there going back beautiful. to the uh, New Deal era of the 30s. Uh, so we have to leave it at that. But uh, Freed uh, Nasif and Dr. Evan Wood, thank you uh, so much, both of you, uh, a faculty at Brooklyn College, for joining us on WBAI Radio. And that uh, does it for tonight's show. Thank you to our board operator, Reggie Johnson. Uh, we will be back on uh, hopefully next Tuesday, depending on the scheduling at the station with Fun Drive stuff. But Amba, what's our closing song? Uh, and don't forget Beirut to Brooklyn to find out how to see uh, the great show up. BeirutToBrooklyn.com and our closing song is Something Sweet, Something Tender by Eric Dolphy, a true jazz talent gone too soon. Mm-hmm.